Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i Blogcast. How are you all doing? It's me, Rain Wilson, and I'm here with an extra special guest. I know I say that every week. But this is a Baha'i treasure of the North American Baha'i community, Judge Dorothy Nelson. Hi, Judge. Hi, Rain. Just call me Dorothy. Can I call you, can I call you Judge or Judge Dorothy? Judge Dorothy is what they call me in Europe. Okay, I'm going to call you Judge Dorothy because I, th- I love the title of Judge. You don't get to call, I know one other Judge, and I love using the title of Judge. Well, then do it. Okay. I have no objection. How come you did not get a reality show like Judge Judy and have a Judge Dorothy <laughs> show? Because you would have been fantastic and you would have been a multimillionaire. Well, the multimillionaire I'd like to be. <laughs> but one of my former law clerks is on one of Judge Judy's other ones called Hot Bench. <laughs> and she is terrific. But no, my husband was a thespian. I'm just a plain old judge. <laughs> You're just a regular old judge. Regular old judge. Deciding the law. Is hot bench, do they have to be like really sexy lawyers? Is that it? Hot bench kind of? <clears throat> Are they like in That's swimsuits? That's not what or? it means, Ray. Okay, all right. It means that they ask a lot of hard questions. Oh, okay. And there are three judges. Oh. And it's, I take my law clerks down to watch them every once in a while. Yeah. But it's a fun show. I had an idea for a, a, a reality judge show, which is a, like mobile judge or judge on wheels or something like that, like a ju- judge truck. Like if you had like a like one of those food trucks, but a judge was in it, and they went and decided cases at people's homes. Actually, you know what? I need to repitch this because this is a really good idea. But imagine if you had a really cool judge in their truck. And, and and going from place to place yeah that happens already does it are there and mobile judges somewhere like in are, the big in the big it, counties where people can big counties way out in the boonies and yeah. they'll come around about once a week yeah and whole court judge truck is a good title too isn't it I love it I love it um, all right judge Dorothy um, it's such an honor to speak with you I'm in your home I get such a warm feeling coming in this home. I've only been here, I think, twice before for Firesides, and you've had weekly, almost weekly Firesides here for how long? Every week, since 1961. Every week of every year, and when I'm away, my wonderful local assembly fills in. Oh, that is beautiful. I swear you can feel the spirit of that in this home. I, I feel it. It's the best day of the week for me. And I could come home from judging, exhausted, and the fireside takes place, and I have never failed to learn something, either from the speaker or the presenter, because we have a presenter and then we have questions and answers, or from one of the people in the audience. So I really look forward to Wednesdays. That's wonderful. And I'll be here in a few Wednesdays doing a fireside. You better be. I'll be here. Everybody's anticipating your arrival. I can't wait. I can't wait. uh, I have a new fireside that I've been doing, which I'm really excited about. And I've done it a couple of times. I'm still kind of refining it. And it's called Spiritual Life Hacks. 
inspired by the Baha'i faith. Do you know what a life hack is by any no. chance? So life hack is a kind of a recent thing that's been on the interwebs of like little shortcuts to make your life better. And most of them online are really pretty dumb. Like there's one <laughs> I use as an example where you turn your toaster on its side and that way you can cook a frozen pizza in your toaster if you, you know, if you turn it on its side. And how, is it hacks? Did Life you... hacks. Yeah, like hacking into a computer, you know, you hack yeah, in. Yeah, I, I think and... of the Russians and I yeah. think of the... So <laughs> See, I, I just make the connections. Con- yeah, you have some negative connotations with that word. But I think the idea is a different, little, slightly different use of the word hack, but uh, little shortcuts, life shortcuts to kind of make your life uh, uh, easier. And so what I have done uh, in the fireside is I have assembled 10 quotes and uh, ideas of practical spirituality basically is what it is like how to make your life better with the teachings of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Bahá on a on a daily and weekly level so it's not all highfalutin about world peace and loving everyone and stuff like that but they're really uh, specifically one of them is the the quote by Abdu'l-Bahá to you know look at if someone has 10 good qualities and one bad one to look at the 10 and ignore the one if they've only got one good one to and 10 bad ones to only look at the one and ignore the 10 that teachings like that for example can really you can use on a daily basis at work and interacting with people i often say to people who come and present at my fireside what do you want them to remember hmm. when they go home and we have some very erudite sport bahais but I said, this is not a university class. This is how can I improve my life and bring some joy and happiness to myself and those around me. Oh, that's beautiful. That's right. It's not, a fireside doesn't have to be uh, an academic exercise. As smart as we have many wonderful Baha'is, uh, sometimes I will have a true academic and I never say this, of course, why people are here, but at the end he said, well, at his suggestions, I said, cut it in half. What? I couldn't <laughs> get all my stuff in. People will not remember all your stuff. That's right. They will remember where you, whether you have touched their hearts. And that's what will change their lives, in my opinion. That, that's beautifully said and, 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 and very, very true. So I've been yapping a lot tonight. I think I'm overly caffeinated. So um, <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. How did you become a Baha'i? I was at the UCLA Law School. It's second class, 72 of us, two women, one 70 men, one black. We all joined a legal fraternity. We were all taken out to dinner a professional fraternity. We all joined. Six weeks later, they wrote from Chicago, sorry, this is 1950, no women, no blacks. Wow. President of our class called us together, he was not yet a Baha'i, and said, this is just wrong. Well, I'd known him for a long time, and he was very smart, but I didn't think he really had a serious thought in his head, unfortunately. And, but he was a good friend of my husband's, and I went out to him. His name was Donald Barrett. Donald, that was a lovely thing to do. But frankly, whatever led you to do it? He said, I've been going to Baha'i meetings in Westwood Village. 
I said, oh, that must be Buddhist. He said, no, 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 no. Oh, that it must be Hindu. No, 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 no. Well, I was a good Episcopalian. My husband was a good Presbyterian. And he said, nope. And he talked about the oneness of God, the oneness of religion, the oneness of mankind. We don't have any clergy, he said, but would you like to come to a fireside? I said, oh, no, thank you, Donald. I'm very active in my own church, and my husband is in his. Well, they, they weren't yet Baha'is. He and his wife had us to a steak dinner. Well, we were law students living in a little place that costs thirty-seven fifty a month. Gives you some idea. We were living <clears throat> on very little. Jim, my dearest husband, G.I. Bill, we went to dinner, and we were supposed to play bridge. Start to pass out the car. I said, say, there's a by fireside just a few blocks away. Would you like to go? My husband looks at me. I look at him. And we were obviously free for the evening, and by golly, we just had a steak dinner after living on hot dogs with cheese, hot dogs with bacon, and all the rest. So we both said, well, that would be very interesting. As we went to get in our car, my husband turns to me and says, let's sit close to the door, just in case it's weird. <laughs> well, this That's was, great advice. Okay. <laughs> that would be a good bumper sticker, too, by the way. Sit, yes. Sit it, close to the door, just in case it gets weird. <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, it wasn't weird, but what impressed me and my husband was, I saw my poli-sci professor there. He later became chancellor of Santa Clara. I saw the woman who worked in uh, the cafeteria and so forth. Black, brown, fat that helped me, and thin. There was a feeling of love in that room that was palpable. So here we are, law students, Having to go to school every morning, we went to our first. We went the next fireside was supposed to start at eight, started at nine thirty, and ended at twelve. Well, we had to go to school at eight, so that whole first year of law school was wasted until summer, and Don became a Baha'i that summer. Don. Don Barrett was the one was the president of our class. Oh, the one that had said, I'm, yes. oh, yes, great. He actually later became general counsel for the Universal House of Justice. Well, we watched Donald in class, but when issues of racism or equality of women and men came up, you could hear a pin drop in our classroom uh, because he, he wasn't saying <laughs> we should abolish racism because it's bad. We should abolish racism period. That is what we're meant to do. And this was in what year? 1951. Wow. That's and a revolutionary act to say in the 50s. Oh, it a, was. With a mostly white audience to say, we have to abolish racism. So in the next 10 years, out of our class of 72, 17 and their families became Baha'is. Oh, my goodness. And went around the world. It was that one righteous, heartfelt, spiritual act, I will call it, on the part of Donald. And he and his wife went pioneering. Well, when they went pioneering, we graduated from law school, and by golly, we were free. And 
we began to really go and be able to stay at Firesides. And we became Baha'is, and it absolutely changed our lives for the better, I might add. And what is Don's last name again? Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T. Don Barrett. That's, that's amazing. I've never heard his name before, but he sounds like a really a Baha'i hero. Like, to me. Like a dawnbreaker. He really was. And his talents, he got a job. Only he sent out 200 resumes, got only one offer. Pan American Airways flew him from country to country. His wife spoke fluent French. He spoke fluent. They both spoke fluent Spanish. And they flew from place to place teaching the faith. Oh, so it's like Baha'u'llah provided him with the perfect Absolutely right. And when he sent out his applications to over 700 people, uh, it got one reply. Yeah. That was okay. That's it, that, the, that one worked out. That was okay. So it just goes if you stick to your guns. Good things happen, but good things happen to us. That's beautiful. And can you tell us a little bit about your late husband? He was uh, such a Baha'i inspiration for, for thousands, tens of thousands. I remember hearing him speak uh, when I was growing up in the faith. I heard recordings of him. Um, read things by him, but just for those who don't know, maybe just fill us in a little bit. Well, the love of my life, we were married for 60 years, but I knew him in the 11th grade. We were YMCA counselors. I was a swimming director at the Culver Palms YMCA, and he was the director. I had 18 little eight-year-olds called, they called themselves the gorillas. He had the Cherokees. We went on (laughs) field trips. And our very first field trip, Santa Monica Pier to go fishing. I had my little gorillas, a little Herbie says, Dorothy, Dorothy, the Cherokees are coming. Did they sit with us? No. Next field trip, Ferndale, the observatory. And there was a mile hike to go to the observatory and Herbie looked down and saw the Cherokees. Then it was politically correct, worth their feathers. They're following us. I said, good, let's wait for them. They got to the top. Jim said to me, seems to be like the same thing as why don't we take our field trips together? So from the 11th grade on, we took our field trips together. But we did a dumb thing getting married in the middle of our first year of law school because first year of law school is sort of tough. And he was in a different law school because his law school, they went from 8 till 12, and he could work. And so we decided to get married in the middle. But my law school, you had to go six days a week. And they give you a class at 9 and a class at 4. So dare you to work. At any rate, without Jim, who knew the Old Testament and New Testament, backwards and forwards at the Beverly Vista Presbyterian Church used to give the 10 o'clock sermon and when he decided to go he was accepted at medical school. So was he a pastor? No he was just somebody they loved. Just a layman sermon yeah. And anyway he was the most brilliant person I ever met. And you said medical school? Well he was accepted at Stanford but when we decided to get married he said okay I'm going to take the law school exam with you, and if I do all right, 
We'll both go to law school, and then you'll put me through medical school. So we took the exam together. The sad part was the first half of the exam was just like the medical exams that he'd done so well on. I sat two seats away from him. He was flipping through. I was holding my head trying to read these things. I never sat near him again in, a, <laughs> in an exam. Because he was racing through the book and answering everything. <laughs> but he loved all the things that I loved. I mean, athletic. He built our hi-fi set. He was learned how to fly. He, deep sea diver. <laughs> My parents loved it because they lived on the ocean and he would go scuba diving and bring back abalone and uh, he just loved to do everything. He loved to camp, he loved to fly, he loved to do these things. And I, he was encouraging. When you speak about a dual career marriage, the first thing I say to people is, if you can, find the right spouse. Because when he became a judge, when he was a trial attorney, he became one for an oil and gas firm. They had three airplanes. That's why he went with that firm. <laughs> he drove, he flew our kids to the national parks. You know, we just did all. But he was my backbone for the firesides. People didn't show up. I didn't care. Okay, Jim, it's you. He could quote chapter and verse. People would come in with little notebooks and take down everything he said. So He was a great Baha'i teacher. I think one of the greatest. Mm. People came, filmed him all the time. Mm. And I haven't seen those films, but he read the books. He and Bill Sears, a great Baha'i teacher, were like two peas in a pod. And Mr. Sears would come and stay with us because our dog liked his dog. And he and Jim... I love that you're telling the story that the hand of the cause, William Sears, would come and stay with you because your dogs got along. Yes, that's... (laughs) And he, of course, was... He loved Jim because Jim had a lot of religious background. Bill himself, Mm. we call him, Mr. Sears, had. But Mr. Sears had this spiritual dynamic that went right through your heart Mm. and we Jim flew us uh, in Hawaii uh, island to island and it always amazed us that Mr. Sears would make a presentation and he'd get out and say was that okay (laughs) Uh, that a hand of cause was so humble about his wonderful abilities and he had a remarkable effect on our life because if Mr. Sears would call up and say, I want to start a victory march from San Diego up to the top of California, will you be on the team? Yes. We give up everything, every Thursday night. He loved hot fudge Sundays. If our meetings went well, we all had hot fudge Sundays. <laughs> but at any rate, the joy of being a Baha'i and being around these great people really changed our lives. That's beautiful. And so you're going to law school. You become a Baha'i partway through law school or after you finish law school or partway through? After we finished oh, law after. school. Okay. No, we, we, we didn't have time to oh, stay those Oh, you didn't have time to go to, those, go to those firesides that, went, that started at 9.30 and went till midnight. 
So you became a Baha'i later. How did that affect your life? How did it change your life? It changed my whole profession. Baha'is believe in resolving conflict through what we call consultation. Mm. It's really a high form of mediation where the parties themselves, we used to have this song in Sunday school, consultation means finding out what everybody's thinking about. You listen to them, underline, and they listen to you, and you all decide what you want to do. The parties come up with the solutions to their problems. When I came on the court, I asked our chief judge, why don't we have any mediators in the Court of Appeals? There were some in the lower courts. Why would anybody mediate on appeal if they won below? I said, they might lose with us. I said, oh, Chief Judge Brownie, can we start with just one? It was all because as an academic, I added mediation to my course on law reform because I was a Baha'i. And one of the, <clears throat> I was the only woman faculty member at USC at that time. At a faculty meeting, I heard down the table, what's Dorothy teaching? Mediation, that's not law. And the answer was, oh, she's just trying to make people love each other. It gives me such pleasure that the hottest topic in the justice system today and around the world, mediation and arbitration, Abdu'l-Bahá spoke about both of those. He did. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. I certainly know about consultation, but mediation and arbitration, I had no and idea. And he said, if you have mediation and it doesn't work, it's all right to go to arbitration. Similarly, in consultation, if you have consultation, which, God forbid, you can't come to a solution, the local spiritual assembly can appoint someone to arbitrate. An arbitrator has the ability to solve the problem, as he or she sees ah, it, mm -hmm, as, a, mm -hmm. as a judge might do. Well, because only four of us in the United States, one of my friends at Yale, one at NYU, one at Davis, and then finally one at UCLA, uh, began promoting, adding mediation and arbitration to our curricula. And now... It is widespread. And we then, my court was downtown in an ugly, ugly old building, and we moved into a restored hotel in Pasadena, five minutes from my house. There were four buildings next to the hotel. President Reagan said, sell everything, sell everything. And the chief judge called me and said, we don't want unpleasant neighbors with Tommy guns looking in our courthouse. Think of something. I said, I've already thought of it. We established the Western Justice Center. Hmm. Acquired four buildings, and I won't go into all the details. It was not fun. But at any rate, federal judges can't raise money. But when I was dean at USC, I had a lot of good friends. They came on. Wait, in the midst of all this, you were dean at USC of the law school? No, I had become a judge. I was still teaching. Yeah. But I still had and still do have connections with both USC and UCLA. And so the Western Justice Center was established in 1987. I went on the court in 19. 
1979, actually, first day of court, 1980, to provide training, peaceful resolution of conflict for children, for judges, mm. and for the community. And it's, as with any nonprofit, has had its ups and its downs. Where we're reaching, we have online free, a program called School Tools. How do you teach kids to ah, to consult mediate. and mediate? Indeed. And, yeah. In fact, this week, mm-hmm. we had our peer mediation invitational. Kids, one day, 60 of them from where you're, I guess you said your son is 14, yeah. well, junior high, and 160 from high schools. They sit and mediate. We bring in real mediators to coach them. No winners and no losers. And one of the great joys of my life, I would rather be with the kids. One quick story about little Herbie in the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I take them in the big courtroom and say, today we're going to litigate and mediate. Do you know what litigation is? Yeah, you sues people. I said, Some, a child gets an F, thinks she deserves at least a C. Fourth grade lawyer for the child, fourth grade lawyer for the teacher, all the rest get to be the judges. Little Herbie, fourth grade is all make-believe. May it please the court. My client got an F because the teacher is a racist. First words out of his mouth. Oh my goodness. He had other arguments. George gets up for the teacher, all make-believe. May it please the court, as they've been taught, my client can't teach to 30 children who come to school late, don't do their homework, and they fall asleep in class. Little Herbie my client falls asleep in class because she comes to school without breakfast. So class votes, Herbie won, George lost. Then we remove the podium, and hello, my name is Herbie. This is my client, Laura. Hello, my name is George. This is my client. Those fourth graders decided the teachers to stay after school and tutor Laura because she shouldn't get a grade she didn't earn. Furthermore, somebody ought to write the PTA and say kids are coming to school without breakfast. What pleased me about that group, we're fourth graders. We can consult and solve problems. They hugged each other. I had a former student at that time, I have other people helping now, who own California Pizza. What worked better, litigation or mediation? They all yell, mediation. I'm so glad you said that. Now you can have pizza. <laughs> so, at any rate, that. Would that we could all be like those fourth graders? Well. Uh, hugging, mediating, having pizza. Indeed. And solving real problems, looking at the larger picture of stuff, looking at race issues that might exist and poverty and breakfast. And, you know, that I remember that was a big deal in the 70s when I was growing up, like breakfast programs for kids. Because realizing that there was a lot of malnutrition and poor families that couldn't or wouldn't for a variety of reasons feed their kids. And you can't learn on an empty stomach. Uh, that's amazing. These fourth graders were able to tap into some of those how issues. smart they are and they yeah. came many from underprivileged schools maybe one parent you know the, not the best but their hearts are just filled really 
if you let them express it with love for other human beings and they're disturbed by bullying, they're mm. disturbed by racism, they're disturbed by sexism. And we have compassion plays. We've hooked up with the LA School of the Arts that put on programs at the high schools that are really fabulous. And these kids get these as rewards mm. for being mediators. But if you're in school and you're using the N-word and somebody reports you, you get your choice of going to the mediator or the principal. So the mediators get a lot of business. <laughs> but yeah. it's working. And this is how the faith influenced me with consultation and mediation and peaceful resolution of conflict. That's just beautiful. I have a couple of questions around that. That just makes me think, there's so many quotes by Shoghi Effendi, uh, the beloved guardian, about how Baha'is provide the leaven for the world of humanity, that Baha'is aren't necessarily going to transform the world by everyone becoming a Baha'i, but Baha'is, during this time of transition, of disintegration mixed with integration, providing the leaven. And that, that reminds me of your work in mediation and creating this uh, nonprofit center, this foundation, uh, you know, providing a leaven that spreads this idea of mediation and arbitration over <clears throat> litigation. I'm sure it's had a tremendous ripple effect. It has had. And as a plain old little law professor, if I would go to India or Egypt or uh, Beijing or something and give a talk about mediation and arbitration, they would politely clap and say, that was nice. I go as a federal judge. How do we do it? Oh. How do we start? So it's been able to make connections all over the world. But when I went to India, the chief justice introduced me to a group about the professions as the conscience of society, doctors, lawyers, and judges. And he said the most interesting thing about Judge Nelson is that she's a Baha'i. When I was last in India, there were over 200,000 Baha'is, 2 million Baha'is. At any rate, in India. In India. Mm -hmm. So, as a plain old law professor, I would have been, thank you very much, come again. But then... I was able to work with the high courts. I sat with the high courts in India, in Norway, in Israel. Uh, I set up a Bedgurian lectureship because I took my sabbatical to Israel. I wanted to go to the World Center. Yeah. And then made, did, I've been doing work for the House of Justice, so it was Jim helping to get the protective stages. We are the only religion that has is protected by the government. And uh, so getting to go to Israel a lot, working for the House of Justice on various projects. But the most important, Don Barrett, the president of my law school class, mm -hmm. was in charge of the one to get us protective stages. But every time I would go to Israel, that I would go and meet with the Supreme Court, Judges, I'd meet with the Minister of Justice. And one day, on a far side night, the Minister of Justice as Israel called up, Hello, Judge Nelson, I'm in town. Let's go to dinner. I said, Oh, Mr. Minister, this is far side night. I'll give your far side. 
So I phoned the, the person who was supposed to go, I said, you're out tonight. And he gave the most wonderful fireside about the presence of the World Center in Israel. Oh, wow. It knocked my socks off. It was really, um, you begin to understand, and we don't always see it, the influence of this faith on the entire world, mm. everywhere we go. Mm. So at any rate, the faith changed my life. I would have been a nice, pleasant, appreciated, uh, academic, and and that was another thing because the way that judges are selected has gone back to the old way now. Roscoe Pound, the former dean of the Harvard Law School, was dean emeritus at UCLA. I had him for seven courses. We used to take him to breakfast at Ollie Hammond's where he wanted mush, and we'd get a Roscoe Pound cigar. But we collected those. He said, it doesn't matter what the law is. If the process for access to justice is imperfect, doesn't matter what the law is. Mm, mm. Since in the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah says, the most beloved of all things in my sight is justice, it was constantly on my mind as I wrote books and speeches and so forth, how can I emphasize this? And my favorite quote and I often use it, I'm old enough now, I'm asked to speak at the funerals of a lot of my colleagues who are just as old as I am. But the quote that they like, particularly for the most, some of the most outstanding judges we have, I always use where it says, be generous in prosperity, thankful in adversity, be worthy of the trust of thy neighbor, and look upon him with a bright and friendly face. Be a treasure to the poor, an admonisher to the rich, and answer to the cry of the needy. Mm. Be unjust to no man, and show all meekness to all men. And this isn't all of it, but it ends with, let integrity and uprightness distinguish all thine acts. I use that quote at least three times a year to non-Baha'i audiences. Yeah. And it's always the quote they ask me for a copy of it. I, so I carry copies of it oh, wonderful. around with me when I go. Oh, that's such a great tip. That's, that's beautiful. So, Judge Dorothy, you have spent decades working in mediation and really based upon the Baha'i spiritual concept of consultation, which I think... A lot of Baha'is don't really appreciate the idea that consultation is a, is a, 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 a spiritual, a, a God-given gift, a spiritual act of, of, of healing. It is so special. You're holding up a book, Dynamic Consultation, Nine Keys to Unity by Trip Barthel. You recommend this book? Very much. Dynamic Consultation, Nine Keys to Unity by Trip Barthel. And also, while we're doing, what is the name of the nonprofit again? The Western Justice Center. Western Justice Center. Good. We'll put a link in. Um, oh, this looks wonderful. Wow. You may take it. Really? Yes, of course. All right. Great. Look at that. I'm going to do a podcast. I get a free book. 
That's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't say you didn't have to pay. Oh. <laughs> I'll put it over here. All right, um, I'll put it right here. Okay, I'll pay. I'll pay you for it. But um, no, you won't. Um, so, what are there some takeaways that you can give the listeners after all these decades of working in consultation, both with Baha'is? You were on the National Assembly for how long? Forty years. Forty years on the Baha'i National Assembly, Spiritual Assembly. Uh, unbelievable. I don't know how you had time for anything. My husband was the answer. <laughs> yeah, really. I couldn't have done it yeah. without him. Um, probably because he had those private planes and he could fly you to Wilmot. Well, no, he couldn't. <laughs> we never did that. No, he really... They were small planes, like 182. could take four people. No, but uh, when I had to do something for the faith, say, go to Africa or something. He was always there. The kids were always saying, when, when's mom leaving? Uh, when he had to go, I was there. We were both in tune hmm. with our family has to, we cannot neglect our family. And always, in fact, we took our kids when they were very young with us. Jim's folks thought we were nuts. It was expensive. World Congress, we uh, all over the place, because they took their work along. They'd write a little report about what did we meet, what did we learn today. Yeah. So when we were both on, he was on for 22 years, and he was chairman for 17 of those years. I, I was on a little bit longer because <laughs> they were looking for women to put on the NSA, I'm sure. In fact, it was one time the National Assembly, before I was on, asked me to speak at National Convention about the epics of the faith. I didn't know anything about the epics of the faith, but if the NSA asked, you did. Well, what did they do to me? They put me on the program with William Sears first. Oh, no. <laughs> People were rolling with laughter and joy and happiness. And Mr. Sears got off. I said, I'm not going on. He said, Baha'u'llah says, you are going on. But I, I learned many, many lessons. But the way the faith affects you, and in consultation, and we Baha'is are learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. The advantage, in my opinion, in consulting with Baha'is is that they believe in Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the faith. They agree. I mean, the rules of courtesy and kindness and listening, the directions given by his son, Abdu'l-Baha, uh, put all the participants in a very receptive mode for listening and what I say listening is we're talking about active listening. Okay. Too many times with non-Baha'is, I find when we're trying to mediate, they're thinking of what they're going to say next. Yeah. They've never heard what the other guy said. Uh-huh. Now with Baha'is, it's easy to say, you know, what Abdu Baha said, are we all doing that? <laughs> And you so can did Abdu'l-Baha back. speak about listening? Forgive my oh, uh, ignorance. Oh, yes, he did, mm -hmm. indeed. But, and I think, I have many books on consultation here, but Trip Bartel's book is a very good one. I should add he has an advantage in that Trip 
goes all over the world with his talented wife teaching about consultation, but he's not a lawyer. And Baha'i lawyers who attempt to learn about consultation, I think, have a harder time until they're connected with Baha'u'llah because all of a sudden rules start appearing. What you all ought to be doing is this, as opposed to what do you think is fair? And, but I must say, the whole idea of having parties coming together to listen to each other and resolve their own conflicts. One of the first mediations that I had a case, the Hopi Indians in Arizona were surrounded by the Navajos. A Hopi Indian goes to law school, comes home, takes a treaty from 1896 and said, Navajos are living on our land, get off. He found the treaty, okay, uh-huh. The treaty said dimensions of the Hopi land had been infringed by the Navajos. The Navajos said, this is an 1896 treaty. We've lived here since 1902. You don't need the land, is Indian talk. We need the land. Well, our court mediator who had served on the Indian reservations two summers during law school, most mediations take one or two days. This took six weeks. But he knew the culture of the Indians. They would sit in a circle. Elder Hopi would take the treaty, take the elder Navajo, and they'd march around. Then they'd sit for six hours, praying, not saying a word. Six weeks later, it was resolved. In the meantime, by the way, Navajos went and bought carloads of guns in the days when you could get guns because Navajos believe in peace, but you can defend your home. Well, the agreement was that the Navajos could stay, that they'd have to write a paper acknowledging that it was Hopi land. They exchanged one dollar. A light rain came down, which they thought was a, a blessing. Well, in Arizona today, there is the Navajo Hopi Housing Authority. What works out, that the Hopis can make a little money by selling at appropriate prices land to the Navajos. The guns were put away. I don't know whether they ever would have been used, but they all agreed. Well, when the naysayers of my own court were <clears throat> concerned about getting into this field of mediation, my dear chief judge gave me one, gave me, I didn't mediate. Then we went to three, we went to seven, we went to nine, we're about to go to 10. And my court goes, I have chambers in Alaska, Anchorage, Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, Pasadena, my favorite, Honolulu. Mm -hmm. I'll go in 10 minutes notice because my sister lives on the big island. Well, at any rate, they, last year, they took 1,000 cases to hear. 
the parties came to an agreement in 85%. Wow. If they'd gone to trial, they would be still waiting to get. Yeah. Hurry. So our, our circuit, uh, not everybody in Washington likes us, but has been commended all over the world, and people come to see what we're doing. And this was all a result of my knowing about mediation, working with Baha'is on mediation, but the best I could do at this time is a, I call, I shouldn't say a low form of consultation, but a lesser form because the participants are supposed to, in Baha'i mediation, say, Baha'u'llah, decree this, therefore we will follow this, whereas not all parties to mediations are sure they want to do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're petty things. People don't sue for what they really want. They sue because they're mad. Yeah. They want revenge. Mediation brings that out. What would make you happy then? Right, right. They come up with better solutions than we could. Ah. If they come to my court, I would have had this land belongs to the Hopis. There's a treaty. I don't know what the Navajos would have done. Mm, mm, beautiful. So what other specific things have you learned about consultation, um, the spiritual act of consultation from all of this work that you've done? What I find, and which is what I really enjoy behind consultation, mm. you have the bounty of, if you come together, reading the writings will put you in a spiritual frame of mind to, well, I always have it, I want to please God. When God tells us this is how we ought to resolve our conflicts, then we ought to resolve our conflicts this mm. way. Mm-hmm. And that works much better in a Baha'i consultation. Although in mediation, it's funny how some people who go through mediation and then they get, and if a Trip Bartel is conducting it, they end up as Baha'is very often. Really? Yes. Because of the love, because of the active listening, because of the kindness, courtesy, because oftentimes people come in ready yeah. to bash each other. Now, how, here's a, here's a tricky question. I'm going to throw you a curveball. It's just gotten me thinking about like, the justice system in the United States seems to me to be quite skewed. Uh, access is limited. Yes. Uh, the criminal justice system seems grossly unfair. It seems like most of the, not most, but many, many of the people practicing law are simply trying to make money at it. They don't care about justice. What is Baha'u'llah's ideal of what justice is, fair-mindedness and justice? versus justice as practiced in the justice system of the Western world? Well, you'll be sorry you asked me that question. but Let's go. Our adversary system, where you have winners and losers, is too costly, too inefficient, too destructive Hmm. for a truly civilized society. Those are not my words, the words of former Chief Justice Warren Berger, 
I didn't always agree with his opinions, but in the field of judicial administration, he was a real leader, and I got appointed to a lot of his commissions. But the emphasis in the active practice of law is emphasized by the unhappiness of many lawyers. We were suing, when I get a case where it's lawyers suing other lawyers for more money or something, Mm -hmm. I find it very hard to get into those cases and say, you know, folks, that's not what you're up to. But I would be highly criticized. But it's the idea that we are here not to win anything. We are here to make things better. And if the justice system can't do that, and the criminal justice system, Abdul Baha wrote a lot about the treatment of prisoners. And I was very interested as a non-Baha'i, you know, do Baha'is believe in capital punishment? And Abdul Baha's answer was, in some cases, if necessary, it is permissible, but is much preferred to figure out how to rehabilitate the people in our system. Now, there are some very evil people, but most that want to just kill people. And that would comprise in the criminal justice system, people not on drugs, etc., maybe less than 10%. The rest of the people incarcerated. And so a lot of us, and when I was a dean of the law school, we were part of many reform, particularly with the establishment of drug courts alternatives to incarceration for people who are not a threat to themselves or Mm. others and Mm -hmm. the like. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of reform movements going on, and I'm very happy to say that in the Baha'i faith, uh, we used to have the the Baha'i Law Society, and now we have many law societies all around the country, but their purpose is to improve access to justice and the... Western Center on Law and Poverty that was established at USC. That's another Western Justice Center. Part of what was to gain access to the underprivileged people. And I remember when the Western, I had nothing to do with this. It was SC, UCLA, and Loyola formed it, but at, at UC, USC when I was dean, the harassment of blacks was the topic. And when the head of the Western Center on Law Poverty came and spent the night with Jim and me, we said, look, let's see if you could bring them together and have active listening and have people and so forth. Well, no, we need to have some prominence in the community. And the board sued the police chief Well, a very conservative board at USC, when the police chief went on channels four, nine, 11, and called me a communist using government money to sue people. Well, members of the board of trustees, fire her, fire her, fire her. Wow. Well, it took me two years 
meeting with alums, meeting with community people, but I was not to go near the trustees. I was the only woman dean on campus, and I was at the back of the bus. Well, everything turned out right. Some of our lovely people donated to the school, et cetera, et cetera. We began to bring the police chief in. Chief Davis was his name. And the funny thing is, when he ran for state senator, he wanted me to endorse him on his campaign. <laughs> the very guy that... That accused had. you of that and called you a commie. And what happened was, two of my alums said, you've got to meet with this guy. He doesn't understand the rule of law and access to justice. So at a restaurant that is no longer in existence, we met, we were to meet at seven o'clock. Jim dropped me off, drove around. I had my Shirley Temples, he had a drink. Oh, well, Dean, I understand. You, you didn't make the decision to sue us. You're trying to give people you know, their day in court, and he began to be, Jim went round and round, it got to be eight, it got to be nine. Uh, he didn't know whether the police chief had shot me or what he'd done. <laughs> uh, and finally he said, let's have one more round. And That's a lot I, of Shirley Temples. I couldn't drink them all. <laughs> so I go to school the next day. The son of the owner of that restaurant was a law student headline on the newspaper, Dean caves in to the chief. Oh my gosh. So, they think I'm a communist. Students think I'm a fascist. And <laughs> those are two very hard years. But because of the faith, every time I ran into something like that, there's never a problem that you cannot overcome. I did a lot of it with food because when I had a warring faculty when I first became dean, that's the only reason I became dean, the, one of the older faculty members said, Dorothy, arrive 15 minutes late to the first meeting, show them who's boss. I went home and made five dozen chocolate chip cookies. And I announced, anybody who arrives on time, well, we began having food at all the faculty meetings. And it's funny how the conversations just melded together. Same thing happened when I went on the court. First meeting, no coffee, no tea, no water, nothing. One o'clock, everybody's friendly. 2.30, they're snipping at each other. Three o'clock, some, I shouldn't say this, but this was a long time ago. I've been on the court 39 years. Someone would walk out and slam the door. So I said to the chief, you know, I'll pay for it. But it seems to be that we would get along better if we had food. He said, oh, what an amazing idea. Of course, you don't have to pay for it. And we began to have food. And it's amazing to me how that calmed people down. Food was, so maybe food is an important part of consultation. I recommend <laughs> all mediators. You yeah, know, bring uh, fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. Well, you got to have a little fruit now. And you have people <laughs> who don't eat chocolate. Sure, don't sure. Eat. So I get not allergies and people not eating yeah, carbs, but have something for them yeah. to chew on. Yeah, some kale. They can yes. just chew on a bunch yeah. of kale. Well, you know, which reminds me of food. We had one of the first affirmative action programs where we took twenty black students, 
And I had to go to beauty parlors to talk to the mothers of these kids who were saying, no, this is the first child who's graduated from He's got to go to work for the other kids. Well, we got full scholarships and so forth. We flunked out seven of them. Thurgood Marshall was a dear friend of mine. Wow. Because his wife, Sissy, when she was in Hawaii, went to a Baha'i school. Wow. So as a dean, I could invite Supreme Court justices. I had him out three times. Well, when the news got out, uh, UCLA took 20, and they flunked out nine, I guess. He said, Judge, don't have a black degree and a white degree, but you get all those kids who flunked out into another school. We had thousands of schools with full scholarships, but keep the others there. Otherwise, any black student, a graduate of your school, will say, you know, did he really deserve it? UCLA, my alma mater, went the other way. But it turned out to be a good thing. We learned a lot. We shouldn't just give tutors to black students. We gave tutors to anybody in school who wanted one. Mm -hmm. 65% wanted a tutor. Uh They felt like second-class citizens. So that was a huge learning experience. But because of my strong feelings about access to justice, you've got to start in your own community. And you can't solve all the problems in the world, but you can solve your own community's problems. So at any rate, food helps. (laughs) That's amazing. That's just amazing. So... Judge Dorothy, uh, the kind of the inspiration for this podcast for me was as a service to maybe young Baha'is. I don't even know if any young Baha'is are listening to this. Oh, um, hundreds, uh, I'm told. Well, dozens maybe, as I as I frequently joke. But as a as a as a the entry point for the discussion is always how do you find that balance between work as a Baha'i and your life as a Baha'i, um, living your spirituality. I, I don't think there should be a duality. I don't think there should be like, oh, this is my work and this is my mm-hmm. Baha'i life. So how do you join them? But what would you say to the listeners who aren't judges? They might be janitors or might be business people or shop owners or, you know, airline pilots or whomever they are, like to to join your 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 spiritual life and your work life and your service life so that they're all intertwined. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's very difficult. Number one, have the right spouse who, when especially when you're raising children, you have to make choices. But if you could establish, you wake up in the morning, read a little bit from the writings. And I remember when I took our children to Haifa, Israel, uh, my little daughter was four, my son was seven. And Mr. Fazy, who was in, uh, we were doing work at that time for the House of Justice, 1965. And I went to the Shrine of the Bob, and I said, I'll stay outside with my daughter. Mr. Fazy handed the cause, took her hand, and took her in. And she, put his head on the threshold, she put her head on the threshold. My husband and I were in the back and all of a sudden we heard this little voice, greater is God than every great one. And Mr. Fazy said, 
do never underestimate your children. Well, anybody who's had children knows you go through your ups and your downs. But the mistake that I think we made, we had too many things at our house. And one of our children does not like to be in crowds at all. Mm. She's a good Baha'i. She works for the Salvation Army as a drug and alcohol counselor and has them over for a barbecue twice during the summer. I leave all my Baha'i books out. Every single time they come, these are people that have gone through hardships in their life. Mom, come and tell them about the Baha'i faith. You know more than I do. Well, they've been raised in this atmosphere. Our families, of course, we cannot neglect our families. I could not have gone on the journeys that I went, and I didn't go on that many by myself, but to Africa and to Egypt and to China. But to China, Jim and I went eight times together, but our children were older. But I think that you need to consult in the evening. Hmm. Okay. Bring yourself to account each day, says Baha'u'llah. We took that very seriously. So you consulted as a family in the evenings? Or well, as a couple or as a family? Well, we have a little hot tub out here next to our pool. Mm-hmm. And we would get in that hot tub with the kids and talk about our days. What was good? What do we need to do to make it more good? And then at night, my husband and I used to read one hidden word to each other at night, leading to discussions. But then we would consult on how is the faith affecting our lives and the lives of our children. And as I say, when we started the Sunday school at our houses, we started out with about 12. When it got to be over 100, you know, the kids had to get up, sweep the yards, clean oh their goodness. rooms, and yeah. so forth. And I didn't realize that we were building in a really dread of having big, lots of people. And uh, I learned yeah. it the hard way. But if something very important was happening with our children, it took precedence over a Baha'i activity that we ah, could say. So prioritized family. Yeah. You have to prioritize it. Mm, that's beautiful. It's not easy. Yeah. And what do you most want to pass on to your children? I know your children are a little bit older because you're like 173 years old. At least. And uh, one child, 57, one child, 60. Okay. What do you most want to pass on to them, even though they're middle-aged? That's a nice way to put it. Um, (laughs) I'm being generous. I always think of Abdu Baha walking in a room and looking around and saying, are you happy? Mm. Are you happy? If not, when will you be? I want them to be happy about themselves, not their car, their house, whatever, And in my opinion, they'll be most happy if they're serving humanity. Because if you're out just trying to make money, uh, for money's sake, nothing wrong with making money if you use it to serve other people. So my daughter, with her work the Salvation Army, has it's just easy. But it's amazing to me how she avoids any big Baha'i gatherings. Hmm. 
but she will bring her friends here. They focus on the faith. Or one of her friends is in trouble, come home, be sitting in our living room. Hmm. And her brother, who is the lawyer, often gets calls from his sister. He's an immigration lawyer. Uh, can you help this person? Hmm. I like it, working cooperatively, but with the point in mind that I will be happy if I'm making somebody else and serving somebody else. Hmm. That's beautiful. So, taking your 173 years of wisdom, you've been a Baha'i such a long time. You've had, you've been on the National Assembly. You've, you've seen, you know, you were a Baha'i before there was the great influx of Baha'is in the late 60s and early 70s. You've seen kind of eras come and go. Now we're in the institute process with Ruhi books and devotional gatherings and uh, trying that. You've seen so many kind of epochs come and go in the yes, Baha'i faith. Yes, you would say that. <laughs> what, what's, can you give us your perspective? Um, I don't know how else to say it, but looking back on where we've come, we certainly have struggles as a community. There's been downturns and declarations. Um, but where do, where do you see the faith going? Um, and can you give us a perspective of the last 50 years and where the future might take us? Well, <laughs> I know a lot of Baha'is feel a lot of doubt sometimes when yes, I speak they to do. them and a lot the of pessimism. Lack of new believers. When I became a Baha'i, when Jim and I became Baha'i together, uh, there were only 5,000 Baha'is in the United States, and that was in 1954. And now we have membership roles of up to 200,000, but we can't find some of those people. Various things have been tried. But we're a learning community, as we keep forgetting. And I know when the Ruhi books first came out, people were very rigid in applying them. We put it in a room, none of you can leave till you remember, all of you have memorized this prayer and so forth. Despite the admonition... I was beaten till, until I learned the uh, Mike Ruhi Listen, quotes. I could have believed it. So a lot of Cattle us, actually, prods. I can believe it. <laughs> it. It was like that. And so people meant well. Institutions meant well. We forgot that we were supposed to learn. And when I would get into Rui and I would see examples, I thought just didn't make any sense. I went to other materials in the faith. And I think we lacked flexibility to adjust particularly in America, because while the Ruhi books really work well in underdeveloped countries, my husband would not pick up a pencil and fill in those blanks. He said, I don't use pencils anymore, and so forth. And happily, our Ruhi instructor at that time, great. But I have to say that we modified all the Ruhi books to the audience when we began to be tutors. We sent those modifications to the people in South America that you yeah. were supposed to re Fundiac. report to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nobody else did that. They felt they were being disloyal if they didn't do one, two, three, four, etc. It's a lack of knowing how to educate people, in my opinion. It's got to be joyous and fun. And 
If you can think of a better way to do it, then do it. That is beginning to permeate. The other thing was the de-emphasis on firesides. We were told to give up our fireside. Well, happily, a member of the House of Justice came visiting the next week. He's nonsense. The Guardian said it was the firesides were the best way to get close to people to wanting to be Baha'is. So I still think in America we have a lot of people that are pessimistic because of our lack of understanding of how you, when we created this new system of Ruhi circles, we were told to modify them if they didn't work for yeah, us. Sure. I think as we begin to learn more about that's what people, that's how people will learn, I think we're on the verge where things are going to change exponentially because once they begin to change, we have in Pasadena the most loving community I could imagine. And we're getting new Baha'i after new Baha'i after new Baha'i. But they tend to come from far sides. They may be sent from Ruhi classes to the far side, which often happens or we will send new Baha'is. But we're very careful about, say, if one of my law clerks declares, one is very close, I have to be very careful at work, but only when they ask, and they've been coming to fireside, I would not put them in some Ruhi classes sure. unless I were in charge or unless someone who understand that, look, these materials are wonderful for most people around the world. But in America, I think you've got to look to your audience. I find in retirement homes and so forth, you give them books and they have to write. They yeah. don't, don't want to write. Well, they don't have to write. Yeah. They yeah. can shout it out. You can discuss and, yeah. Discuss. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up Ruhi and your wisdom about it, um, seeing it in perspective. I, I always feel like people find someone that might be uh, interested in the Baha'i faith. They go, oh, that sounds interesting. Great, take, come take this Ruhi one. And I don't know that the best thing to do for someone who's showed an initial interest but really doesn't know anything about the Baha'i faith is to put them right into a Ruhi book. I really don't. I, I think that's... Uh, that I might... have to say I agree. You've got to look at your audience. Little old people who still like to read and so forth might be put in to Ruhi one. But if you get young, dynamic people, yeah, why should I? You've got to tell them about Baha'u'llah. Especially if they're in school all the time. And, uh, yes. And, and they, they might need four or five firesides to kind of get caught up. They might need to hear about some of the spiritual ideas behind the Baha'i faith. To just have a spiritual discussion about the hidden words or um, just deepen together, pray together. Deepen that, together. We do in our community. Yeah. Last book was Advent and Divine Justice. It's not part of the Ruhi group. Yeah, we're starting that actually where we just finished Ruhi book eight, all three parts, which was fascinating. But now we're putting Ruhi on hold and we're going to do an in-depth look at Advent of Divine Justice yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, for our whole cluster. And I, I think the hope is that Baha'is will become more creative mm -hmm. in the way we want to be obedient 
the institutions. I mean, I've been through the Ruy books too. But while going through them, saw things that would not appeal to my audience. Mm-hmm. I substituted, as the makers of Ruhi suggested, other materials. I happen to have worked on the core curriculum materials for years. And there's some, you know, in, in the children's book it says, discuss how you would build a sheep pen. Well, for our children here, <laughs> uh, they don't even know what a sheep pen is. <laughs> so I would just substitute materials. It takes time. Yeah. And, but I think patience said the bob is the greatest virtue. It's the one I have least of. You and me both, sister. Oh. Patience is the one. I said that on another podcast. It's my, oh, did you? It's my weakness. Oh. It's, I get so impatient. That's why I needed a husband. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted everything to change now. Yeah, uh, but I do not have. So the you, so you have hope for where the Baha'i community is heading and where it might be. Yes, turning. I do. I certainly have found uh, recently in the last like five, seven years, people are much more receptive to the Baha'i faith than they were oh. say 10, 12, 15 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely, recent yeah. turn. Attendance at our fireside is increased a lot. No, I'm very optimistic. In fact, people, <laughs> some of my fellow judges, Dorothy, why are you so optimistic about everything? And it's funny, this one judge who says this, she has a Baha'i as one of her clerks and will go to a dinner, say, in San Francisco. And she'll turn to other judges and say, some of them, did you know that Dorothy is a Baha'i? And her clerk is just simply astounding. She will come occasionally. I'm hoping when you come, my first Muslim law clerk. And he helped me with these 200 kids, my two law clerks, one is Chinese. And he said to these high schoolers, do you know why Judge Nelson is interested in mediation? She's a Baha'i. And they believe in consultation, which is a form of mediation. That's Omar, my Sunni Muslim. Uh-huh. So, yes, I am very optimistic. I wish it would go faster. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I actually miss being on the NSA. I don't miss travel to Wilbet. Uh-huh. That was the hardest part, and being the age I am, I'm, I'm a delegate to the National Convention. I say goodbye to everybody for the 62nd time. <laughs> and you can't get up and say, I am not <laughs> going back there again, but I am going back there again. And I still get up after the voting is all over, concerned about Rui, concerned about firesides and so forth. So I have many opinions, not all of them, <laughs> are probably valid, but because there are a lot of us, because we believe in Baha'u'llah, we know it's going to happen. I just want it to happen sooner. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a great way to end. This has been just a beautiful discussion. I feel so honored and privileged to be able well, to be sharing this with you. You are a master oh. at podcasts. Well, at any rate, and you know. She put the podcast app on my phone. Oh, now you can listen to them. I Join yeah. our dozens of other listeners. Who has time when I come home 
But do you drive into work? You can listen. They're, that's why podcasts are so popular. Is people sitting in their cars listening to them. Yeah. So there you go. But it only takes me five minutes to get to work. Oh, well. It's a good idea. Anyway, I'll figure you, it out. Thank you, Judge Dorothy. And thank you. There may be a spot for you on my reality show, Judge Truck. <laughs> mobile, mobile judge. I think you'd. Love- I can't wait to hear. I'll try if I have time. I have to give a talk at UCLA tomorrow, but <clears throat> have one of my fancy law clerks who know everything about the internet to dig up mobile judges and see if we can find. Oh, find a good where one. They are. Oh, I love it. I okay. love it. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening. And thank you. It was a privilege to be here. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.